Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The government is open on this short holiday week, and it'll stay that way through at least the first couple months of the new year. That's thanks to a continuing resolution Congress passed and the president signed late last week. But the way Congress went about it is going to make things complicated and maybe harder to pass full appropriations bills for 2024. Mitchell Miller is the Capitol Hill correspondent for our sister station, WTOP, and he joins us now with the latest from the Hill. And Mitchell, lots to talk about, but let's uh, let's actually start with the CR that just passed late last week or that the president just signed late last week. This uh, laddered approach is, is certainly unique, something we haven't quite seen before. Talk us through what the implications are and how it may complicate life down the road. Yeah, this had a lot of people's attention when it was first introduced. And actually, it came from a Maryland congressman, Andy Harris, who's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. They were trying to find some way that they could balance the conservatives with the more moderate Republicans in the House and try to figure out some way because a lot of conservatives do not like continuing resolutions, as you know. So this was they were trying to appease both groups. But bottom line for the federal agencies is that you've got this two step process, hence the name laddered continuing resolution where you have these appropriations that are going through January 19th and then another set through February 2nd. Now, critics will say this only creates more opportunity, if you will, for more shutdowns and potentially more issues. Uh, And if you look at the two tranches, uh, you have military construction and veterans affairs Uh, HUD all being funded in that first January 19th group. And then the Defense Department gets more of its funding on February 2nd. Well, some people from the Pentagon have pointed out that this is really going to make things very difficult for them because they're already trying to plan around these potential shutdowns. And Mike McCord with the Defense Department, the chief financial officer last week, he stated that this just makes it more difficult for them to make any kind of long range planning because they're always having to worry about the possibility of a shutdown. And of course, as he points out, that affects morale, it affects planning. And uh, what he would like to do, obviously, is see it more uh, the the basic back to uh, regular order. Of course, that's what the House is trying to get to, but they just aren't getting there right now. And I think it's going to be really interesting when you have this what I believe will be a major clash between the House and the Senate when we get into January and into February. Uh, There could be a very good chance, actually, of a shutdown because they really did kick the can down the proverbial road this time. And what, what would be the source of that tension? Is it just that there are unacceptable items in the House appropriations bills? That's part of it. And also that the House really, in the view of Democrats, went back on the agreement on the debt ceiling where former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Democrats agreed on these certain levels. And then when McCarthy went back and eventually got kicked out by conservatives, uh, they said, no, we don't want that level. We want to go deeper. So they are proposing a lot of much deeper cuts in these appropriations uh, bills. And also, as you mentioned, some of these poison pills that are scattered around in some of these spending bills as well. So I think they are going to push really hard when we get to January because they kind of gave the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, this little honeymoon period and said, okay, we'll give you a mulligan here and you can do this CR right now. But when we get into January, we're going to really go hard on getting these spending cuts. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has made it very clear that Democrats are not going to go for any of that. So House Republicans are probably going to hit a stone wall with uh, Democrats 
Democrats in the Senate when we get into the new year. And I guess one of the oddities here is this this whole CR process will have extended 2023 funding levels, basically, not quite, but almost halfway into 2024. So if they want to achieve some set level of 2024 spending reductions, you would have to cut even deeper in that back half of the year in order to get where they want. Is that a good right yeah, way to think that, about it? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to think about it. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to think about it in that way, but that's really where we're heading. And of course, uh, under that debt ceiling that I mentioned, um, you know, even uh, if they get close and almost pass all of these uh, 12 appropriations bills, but they don't, and they don't hit the uh, April 30th deadline, which is under the debt ceiling, uh, to avoid sequestration, then they're going to hit a 1% across-the-board top-line budget cut. And again, that's something that the Pentagon is really concerned about, uh, as long as well as a lot of uh, Republicans and Democrats, particularly in the Senate, uh, who want to make sure that military funding continues to flow uh, that could really uh, cause a lot of cuts across the board uh, for defense spending in the coming year. And while we have you, Mitchell, I wanted to make sure we talk a little bit about the uh, decision uh, on, on the FBI headquarters location in, in Greenbelt, Maryland, because I know you talked to both members of the Virginia Senate delegation about that this week. Is there still a chance that this may not be a done deal and then this saga will drag out further? Well, that's certainly the hope of the Virginia delegation. They are really roaring mad about this decision. And we all knew that when the decision was made that um, each side, one side was, of course, going to proclaim victory. In this case, uh, as they call themselves, Team Maryland, the Maryland delegation. And, and then on the other side, uh, Virginia is just so upset about this. But more than just a we thought we had a better site type of back and forth. In this case, you have the Virginia delegation formally now requesting that the GSA's inspector general do a full review of this. And they point to the comments that were made by FBI Director Christopher Wray in a letter to the GSA in which he said uh, he had real problems with the fact that a three-member panel of the GSA had recommended the Springfield, Virginia site and then was effectively overruled by a political appointee within GSA. And so uh, Senators Kane and Warner have made it clear they are going to push and push hard on this. I don't know that it'll necessarily get reversed, but it will certainly stretch out how long this is going to be discussed. And that, of course, is going to delay whether or not funding actually potentially comes to, for the actual relocation to Greenbelt, uh, whether or not you know the, the shovels are going to go into the ground. And then there's a really an interesting twist related to this as well. Uh, House Republicans are actually upset with the FBI for totally unrelated reasons. Uh, they think that the FBI has uh, gone too far in terms of surveillance and have a whole list of uh, issues that they have with the FBI from a policy standpoint, and they have actually threatened to try to withdraw the money for the relocation because of those reasons. And what's interesting is last week, Virginia Congressman uh, Jerry Connolly actually indicated if the Republicans go ahead and try to hold up the funding for Greenbelt, he would be open to the idea of supporting that. Now, Senators Kane and Warner wouldn't go that far necessarily, but that just shows you to the extent uh, the argument is still going on, even though this decision came after literally years being, being years in the making. And speaking of the prospect of punishing agencies for decisions lawmakers don't like, it looks like there's a bit of movement on breaking the logjam over military nominations uh, that's been in place for many months now by Senator Tuberville. What, what's happening there? 
Yeah, this is finally really coming to a head, and it's only taken, what, nine months? Since February, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has held these promotions up, and by the way, they have continued to rise. At one point, it was around 200 military promotions. We're now at the point where it's at more than 400 military promotions, mm -hmm. and last week, after the continuing resolution was passed by the Senate, you would think that they would kind of wipe their hands of it and say, okay, we've we avoided a shutdown, we're going home. But but Republican senators included are so mad at Tuberville that they actually stayed on the Senate floor and tried again, as they have in the past, to individually bring up names uh, for promotions. And each time he objected. And this went literally into Thursday morning to, to like two in the morning as they tried to push him on this. And then of course, the other big significant development, very significant that could break this log jam is the fact that uh, the rules committee basically said they were ready for a change in procedure to allow all of these promotions to be taken up on block. In other words, they could all be taken up at once, which has never been done before. And the Democrats, though, they do need to get nine Republican votes to pass uh, to get over a filibuster. There are several Republicans right now who are so fed up with Tuberville's hold on all these promotions that they have indicated they may go along with Democrats, even though they really, really don't want to change procedure in the Senate. And it would only be temporary, but nonetheless, there's a lot of institutionalists that don't want to change. But I do think that this is going to come to a head in the coming weeks because Actually, if we get to the end of the year and to the start of the year, everything gets wiped out and they would have to start from scratch. Oh. So uh, that is really why that once again, it's the calendar that's putting the pressure on the lawmakers. They've allowed this to go on for so many months this year. But if they have to literally start over and then plus, let's not forget that we have a war raging on in the Middle East. We have the situation in Ukraine, as many of the people have pointed out, and just the hardship on um military families. It's not just the individuals whose promotions are at stake. They have to plan ahead, of course, to where they're going to live, where they're going to be reassigned. So it's been a real mess. And uh, there's certainly no love lost for Tommy Tuberville in the U.S. Senate right now. And if they get to the end of the year by starting over, you mean really start over, that they would have to all be renominated by the president, go through the Senate Armed Services Committee, then go to the floor for each one of these? You know, there might be some way to short circuit that a little bit, but that is my understanding that that all of these effectively expire. Uh, and so that really has a lot of people concerned, including obviously the people in the Pentagon who are depending on all these high ranking uh, people to get into the positions they need to be in. All right. WTOP's Mitchell Miller joining us from Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for bringing us up to speed. You bet. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is, 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.